A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. And where there is despair, May we bring hope. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, they were Margaret Thatcher's aspirations as she entered number 10 at the start of 11 years as British Prime Minister. She didn't do much to conquer despair or to bring peace. I mean, just ask the sailors on board the Belgrano or to bring hope. Ask those who lost their jobs in the industrial north. She was motivated. She had a plan. But was it all based on less government spending and prosperity through private debt? It certainly was. So when the UK Labour leader writes an article praising Margaret Thatcher for bringing change to the UK, is he showing his true colours? Is the UK moving from one Conservative government next year to another one? This week, let's have a look at Margaret Thatcher's policies, some of the good things she did as well as the bad. We'll look at all of those today. So what was Keir Starmer thinking? I mean, the man who is most likely to be the next British Prime Minister, after all, he's got 45% of the vote now compared to 25% for the Tories. So um, um, almost certainly he will be uh, the next leader for the UK. And he's been, I don't know why, extolling the virtues of Margaret Thatcher and her government of the 80s in an article that he wrote for the Daily Telegraph uh, a week or so ago, saying she brought meaningful change to Britain. Well, she certainly brought change where there was meaningful. She saw to, in his words, drag Britain out of its stupor by setting loose our natural entrepreneurialism. You know, I, uh, Steve, I always get worried about this idea of entrepreneurialism because, of course, the vast majority of people are not entrepreneurs and those that were would probably do what they were going to do anyway without too much concern from the government or what the government does. But supposedly one of the great things that Maggie Thatcher did was free up this entrepreneurial spirit just sod the rest of them. That was the problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's a, it's it's I mean, I've, I've put my framing on this whole thing. I remember, I can't remember which one it was, but one of Maggie Thatcher's advisors was asked before she won, will you be happy when you've got a conservative government in power? And his answer was, no, I'll be happy when you have two conservative parties vying for power. And then at a later stage, uh, Maggie Thatcher also... That's where we are now. Yeah. Well, Maggie Thatcher <laughs> described her greatest achievement as Tony Blair. So, you know, and, I, yeah. and that's been that huge shift in the nature of the Labor Party. That's not to say that there weren't elements of, of England's landscape, uh, political and industrial, that needed a, a good shake-up, uh, you know, but not, not, the, not, you know, not what came through. But I'll let you – you've done the research around Well, sure I mean, well, see, I mean, but, I, but yeah. on, I mean that, yeah. you're right about that. I mean, there's a lot of things that she did do, actually, which had to be done because Britain was – in a bit of a fix, wasn't it? So, I mean, it, she came on board when inflation was um, was very high. Uh, I mean, more than seventeen percent in nineteen seventy nine. That interest was a global rates... phenomenon. This is this, this is yeah. You know, I mean, True. and 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 this like America had the same situation. Australia had the same situation. They all fell, uh, and and we can talk about the reasons for the inflation changing. 
over time. But if I had to date when England made its big mistake uh, about its direction of industrial development, I'd choose not, when was that? We're talking 1970? I'd choose 1840 because that was when <laughs> I think it was uh, Cecil Rhodes went to a meeting of, uh, surreptitiously to a meeting of uh, a socialist party in London and said what he heard was the demand for bread, bread and more bread and said that the only way we can ensure that we don't have a revolution in Britain is to exploit the colonies. And so what you had from 1840 on, and you can see this in the data too, when you take a look at the level of industrial development of the UK versus the industrial development of, say, Germany, uh, and then ultimately also, of course, Japan and so on, uh, it, it came to a halt in terms of its comparative rate of growth in the 1840s. And all the effort went mm. into ripping off the colonies I think that's supposed to be called a development, but I'm not sure. Ripping off the colonies rather than developing the industrial base back in England. Yeah, well, so it was the 80s, of course, when Maggie Thatcher was around, 1979 to 1990. Uh, so basically all through the 80s. Uh, and I think her answer did, uh, deflecting uh, the, the, what was happening at home uh, by looking at the colonies, her approach was, well, deflect how poor, poorly off people were by making sure they had a house. So we, you know, So they felt the wealth effect. That was a big part of what she was out to achieve. Well, yeah, and I, that also turns up in the data. One, one thing which is quite remarkable when I look at uh, compare global uh, levels of private debt across the globe, uh, and, the, and the Bank of England has a great series. I've got to really integrate it with the one I take from the Bank of International Settlements these days. But the Bank of England has a, a debt series on private debt and government debt going back something like 300 years. And from certainly 1880 through to 1980, so a century of data, the level of private debt in the UK never exceeded 75% of GDP. When Maggie deregulated the housing market to enable banks rather than just building societies to lend for house purchases in Britain, that debt level went from 75% to 210%. And that is what mm. caused the housing bubble. And then if you take a look at the, uh, and I've just been looking at this again, just uh, the Bank of International Settlements has published its most recent data a couple of days ago. If you take a look at which uh, countries' house prices have risen the most, uh, they use a, a, a 2010 as their reference date. So that's, you know, you get everything, everybody was 100 in 2010 and you fast forward now and you see who's risen the most since 2010. But by taking it back to 1970, which is where the data starts, looking at the countries around the world, the country where house prices have risen the most, without a doubt, is the UK. Mm. So the wealth effect was there, but now, of course, what the uh, Gen X and everything else is feeling is we can't afford to get into housing effect. Yeah. Well, I mean, the most astonishing policy, I'm not sure everyone will be aware of this, it, it, it lasted up until the year 2000, was the tax breaks that existed. So uh, she introduced it in 1983. Uh, and initially, when it came in, there was there was no limit to this. You basically paid the interest in pre-tax income on your mortgage. So... I mean, these days, a lot of people, uh, you know, are paying almost half their income goes on their mortgage. If you had an interest only mortgage, that would be like having half of your income not getting taxed. So and there was initially no upper limit on that. So, of course, people were going, well, let's 
Let's buy a house. Let's buy a pricey one. Let's get a uh, one where we're, you know, we're paying the most interest rather than paying off the capital because we can claim all of that against tax. And no wonder house prices skyrocketed with a policy like that. Yeah. And and so what you get is an incredible, basically a a Ponzi scheme uh, because, you know, Mm. the only way you can make money out of housing in, in the sense of producing something is to sell the kids. Now, the way the UK is going, that's not too far down the track. Uh, but it, yeah, but what it, do I get for them? Huh? Well, tr- I mean, it's I- a thought. I'm just wondering how much they're worth. Yeah. yeah if anyone's, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, in effect, by saying, well, okay, we're going to, this comes out of pre tax profit, in a pay, way, the government is actually paying for you to have a house on, on a policy like that. Or paying you to speculate on the value of the house and, and to make and basically yeah, yeah. turn housing from a long-term consumption item, which it fundamentally should be, into a speculative asset. And this is the transformation, the financialization of capitalism, uh, which is ult- ultimately unproductive. Because when you take a look at mm. what actually drives house prices, and this again is where I'm a bit of a, of course, I'm a, a rebel compared to the mainstream. Uh, what causes rising house prices is rising levels of new mortgages. So you actually have a feedback, what's called an, a, the, the um, systems dynamics people call it a positive feedback. I call it amplifying because the social outcome is anything but positive. Uh, what causes house prices to rise is more new mortgages being taken out compared to income. So it's only sustainable as long as house uh, mortgage levels are rising and rising faster all the time. And then, of course, it crashes, which is what we've been seeing with British house prices recently. Mm. So you get caught up in a Ponzi scheme. And that is you know, um, not what I call the sort of reform that a Labour Party leader should be championing. No, exactly. And I mean, that was really her legacy, wasn't it? In fact, you know, the fact that all of a sudden this this drive for housing and then on the other side, as well as people saying, well, let's do it because it's tax efficient. uh, You had this big push by council house tenants to buy their houses with a discount of up to 70%. So I guess, you know, she felt these people who probably didn't have great lives would feel happier if they actually owned something to have a mortgage rather than pay the rent to the government. Uh, the problem, of course, which, you know, I mean, there's actually nothing wrong with that idea, I guess, you know, to, to incentivise people or encourage people to, to own assets uh, if it makes them feel better. I mean, in theory, there's nothing wrong with that, so long as you replace those houses with new council houses. That didn't happen. So you've had a, a, a yeah. like, a, and and this again, when you take a look at the policies, the 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 advertising versus the final product, um, what was supposed to happen out of privatising housing was more housing being constructed, and would then solve the problems with the housing market. And what's the most dominant yeah. issue in British politics these days? Inadequate housing, overpriced housing, impossible rents, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the the advertising versus the outcome are entirely different. Yeah. I mean, the idea. Of encouraging some sort of social mobility is is fine. So the first part of it was okay. But 88,530 newly built council houses in 1980. In 1990, for example, it had got down to uh, pretty much a linear progression to 17,710. Since then, actually, we've had, uh, we've had years when there's only been a few hundred built. Uh, so uh, because now... It's all left to developers. You know, we've got this idea of low-cost housing where developers are encouraged to offer. If you know, if you want planning permission to build this block of flats, you've got to provide some low-cost housing. But low-cost housing, I think, very often is defined as being like 75% of the full value, which, which for most people is just beyond reach anyway. So we've privatized the problem but not really fixed it. And if you compare that to Singapore, which actually has an extremely high level of public housing, what you've mm. done is, is, I mean, 
in that sense, uh, flexibility comes from renting a house rather than owning one. Uh, If you're owning several and you're speculating and you're gambling, you don't care where they are. But if you're buying a house, then once you've bought it, you've got the the, the cost of moving anywhere else are much, much higher. So the Singaporean attitude was to enable their workforce to be entrepreneurial. Uh, It's better to say, let's provide housing as effectively a social service and you can move where you like. Of course, Singapore's not all that big. But uh, in in the case of the UK, what you now have is dead areas like the north of the country uh, where you, 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 you can't afford to buy and what you can afford to buy locks you in. And then, of course, the house price appreciation has been in the south as well. So you become locked into living in, in different regions. Mobility has gone down, not gone up. Yeah. And also, and certainly I've noticed this from the Australian data, because I looked at this quite carefully when I made the mistake of trying to run for politics there. Um, all the policies which have been intended to increase home ownership have reduced it over time because what they've done is they've made housing more expensive. They've made it from a consumption item into a speculative item and the level of ownership, outright ownership has fallen. The level of ownership with the mortgage has risen. So more people are in debt for their houses than there were before the policies came in. And the level of tenancy has has fallen, has, has increased as well. There are more people renting from private landlords. And of course, there's less renting from public. So all around, and not just in Maggie's case, of course, because I'm using examples from Australia here, privatizing higher housing and making it more market-driven has ended up with a materially worse outcome for the society as a whole. Yeah, but astonishing that in the UK, and I wasn't aware of this because I wasn't in the housing market at the time, but the idea that you could write off against tax all your interest payments on your mortgage is just astonishing. And no wonder people were buying up big. But the other thing she did was, uh, that's all gone now. That disappeared in 2000. They sort of like introduced limits and then those limits got uh, deeper and deeper until the point there was really no point in having it at all. But uh, so we saw that one off. She also, of course, deregulated the financial industry. So we had what was called the Big Bang. Uh, now, I know a lot of it was to do... I don't fully understand the, the entire repercussions of this. I know a lot of it was to do with the payment of commissions and the London Stock Exchange, which was seen as holding too much power. So I think until then, the only way that shares were traded was by the job... And someone, someone might correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the jobbers on the floor, you know, those people yelling sell and buy the they were the only ones who could actually buy and sell shares you know we didn't have an electronic platform in those days uh, so if you wanted to put an order in you had to put it through to a jobber on the floor and they would control basically what was happening in the buying and selling of shares so we've come a long way from that with electronic platforms which was sort of introduced under the thatcher era and the ability for anybody basically to be able to use those including foreign investors and so until then you foreign investors weren't able to to buy into the uk share market so all of a sudden we were flooded with capital from foreign buyers wanting to buy into the uk share market so it seems like it was a rather antiquated and very controlled by the london stock exchange mechanism that we had so she did some good there, didn't she? No, I don't think so. Because again, that has you know, we, Keynes put it very well back in the 1930s, as saying when the development of the economy is the side effect of the activities of a casino, the job is likely to be mm. all done. So when you take a look at where GDP growth came from the UK from about 1980 forward, it was predominantly in the growth of the services sector. But the services sector 
in the UK in particular, boils down to basically insurance and, and share speculation and debt. And so you had a, a great growth in the amount of private debt, as I said, it tripled compared to GDP from 1984 to about 2010. Um, it, you had uh, far more financial speculation going on. And the, the argument was that we would let the manufacturing sector decline, but services would take the place because services were the growth area. Now, if you look at, I'm going to be slightly wrong on these figures. I'm not looking at the actual data. As I say this, I'm going from memory. But if you go back to the 1980s, uh, the GDP in the UK was roughly 30% was manufacturing. It fast forward today, it's about 18%. Germany, and then it was roughly 30%. Fast forward today, it's roughly 30%. So the, mm. the, the gamble was made by the UK that services would replace the manufacturing sector in terms of total output. It hasn't done that. And that's given, for, for a substantial part of that time, it's given the UK a chronic trade deficit. It now imports the goods it used to manufacture domestically. And the skill base has been eroded dramatically as well. So, um, you know, all these things, what you had was a, a compensation for undermining the physical productivity and innovation at that level of the economy by increasing the financial speculation. And uh, my old mate Carl put it best about that, saying, saying talk about centralisation. He's talking literally about London at the time. The, uh, the, 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 the big banks and the money lenders and, and hangers-on who surround them uh, know nothing about capitalism and should have nothing to do with it. <laughs> I'd rather have Marx running uh, industrial reform in the Britain on that front uh, rather than Maggie. Well, the, yeah, but I mean, there's there's two things here, isn't it? On the one side, yes, there's the big question mark about you know how much speculation is a, a a bad thing, and it's not real money, and you know it's not the real basis for economy. But on the other side, if it is happening, having the London Stock Exchange employing jobbers who are working on a floor, and they are completely in control of those those transactions. I mean, there was a big antitrust case that was against the London Stock Exchange just as Maggie Thatcher was coming into power, which sort of evoked some of these these changes so that, you know, anybody could trade and trade electronically. It does. I mean, that had to happen, didn't it? I mean, it seems antiquated that well, you just you, got a whole yeah, lot of people I mean, yelling but, on the floor but again, that's con a, that's, controlling the game. But that's, again, that's a global phenomenon. Every country in the world has gone electronic because, you know, it, it's the same as getting getting money. You used to go to get it from a teller. Now you go to an ATM and press a button to mm. get it all out there. Um, so, so that, that and, you know, and my father actually played a major role in that happening in Australia. Um, so I was leading about ATMs all the time back at home. Uh, so yes, that, but that that technological change was coming anyway, uh, and and the same for for share trading. Once you have a computerized system or a computer database, then it's simply a case of building an interface so users can interact with that directly, rather than having to go through, uh, you know, bringing up a broker or and getting the broker to pass the order on to jobbers. So that's that, that again. That's a technological change which was coming anyway. I don't think you can thank thank Maggie one. Or the well, no, that. but the Big Bang was was the one that changed that regulation so that it was possible for anybody to buy shares in in the UK, and maybe you know it just it, it it exploded. It was a Big Bang, and it exploded because there was so much interest in the already so much interest in the UK share market, uh, and this was just facilitating it to to a wider audience. She couldn't stop that, really, as you say. So we can't lay the blame entirely on her for the growth of the finance industry. Perhaps I mean it, we can lay the blame on her for the demise of all the other industries. 
but I wonder whether we can blame her for the for the growth of the finance industry, well, except, of course, that she was creating so much debt through housing and the like. Well, the housing, the, the, the main one is the change in housing rules. And again, this is the sort of thing politicians aren't aware of, and mainstream economists actually delude them about it to begin with. Uh, they don't see that there's any problem in letting banks lend to create uh, mortgages. Now, when a, when a building society lends you money, there's a transfer from the, the bank account of the building society, which is where all the members of the building society put their money to you so you can yeah. go and buy the house. And then uh, there's a circulation of money. There's no creation of money going on. So there's therefore no force driving up house prices when you are financing building housing via building societies. When you let banks do it, they create money. They whack money in your account, which you then give to the seller. Uh, they whack a debt against you. And that is what actually causes the runaway growth in house prices. So yes, I will blame Maggie for that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I can blame every other every other politician on the planet for falling for the same mistake. And we can blame her as well. And we'll we'll talk about this when we come back for making a lot of people in the uh, in the north of England and in Northern Ireland very poor uh, compared to people doing quite well in the south. And how everyone couldn't just get on their bike and move south. We'll we'll look at that when we come back. Plus, you know how she dealt with inflation. She did inherit a problem with inflation. So we'll look at how she tackled that as well when we come back on the Debunking Economics uh, podcast. Me and Steve Keen, back in a second. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So we are looking at Margaret Thatcher this week. Uh, because Keir Starmer has been looking at Margaret Thatcher, the potentially the next Prime Minister, more than likely the next Prime Minister of the UK, uh, is he just uh, another Tory party stooge, uh, just in uh, in a red tie? Seems like it, doesn't it? Because he seems to be making a, a, a... She's a bit of a hero of his, clearly. I mean, she unleashed this entrepreneurial spirit, Steve. Well, Blair came out with the same stuff, saying, you know, Maggie, um, Maggie, mm. the, uh, Maggie made us, fundamentally. Uh, and that's unfortunately yeah. true. I mean, the, the, when I look at the the British uh, economy over time, uh, you had a, a you, given the re- revolt, the, the Great Depression, the, the impact of the Second World War, the class divides in the UK, which you know, having experienced living there for about six or seven years, they became extremely apparent to me. Um, you you did have a sort of a, a monolithic trade union response to it. You want to you know socialise the commanding house of the economy, blah blah blah. This itself, I think, reflected the 1840s attitude that we have to develop the colonies and exploit them rather than doing local industrial. 
industrial development. So far from unleashing the innate uh, entrepreneurship of the, of the British people, it encouraged the innate uh, exploitative nature of the, the Norman conquest, uh, where you go and rip off the locals uh, rather, mm. rather than doing your... You know, the, the industrial development you see occurring in the UK really came out of the Huguenot uh, refugees from, from Europe. They were the ones doing a lot of the innovation, plus to a large extent also Scottish uh, Scottish innovators. The, the the ruling class in the UK, from what I could tell when I was there, and if you look at history as well, they're into ripping off. They're they're into being landlords, and what you had is a mm. not not a development of a capitalist class, which was the ideology that Maggie had. You had a landlord class, where the landlords were now landlords in finance as well as landlords on the land itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's look at what she inherited then, because in 1979 we had inflation climbing to more than 17 percent. The Interest rate was thirty percent to try and bring it down. This is what she, you know, what she inherited. Despite this, inflation peaked to twenty-two percent in the mid eighties. It didn't actually um, in mid nineteen eighty, I should say, it didn't actually get down to single figures until April nineteen eighty-two. Um, so, I mean, first of all, I mean, this was you know the follow-on from inflation of the nineteen seventies. So. There was the oil crisis, but also there was the argument, which was you know being pushed by Milton Friedman, that government spending. Is, uh, is the reason for a lot of this as well. There was too much government spending, too much wage price spirals, uh, and that's what was causing inflation. So just put yourself in Milton Friedman's mind for oh. a second. Just, just uh, you know, get, try and get to your inner Friedman. How does high government spending cause inflation? You can maybe have a bowel movement if you keep this up. Um <laughs> it, 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 we actually saw this in the COVID uh, inflation, which is now petering out, um, because there are three fundamental drivers of the rate of change of, of prices. Uh, there's the, the best work on this by far, by the way, is done by my, my good mate Blair Fix. So anybody wants to go with the detailed look, Blair Fix and uh, Isabella Weber are the two who are doing interesting work on inflation these days. But at the aggregate level, the, thing, the three factors that cause an increase in prices are a drop in, in productivity, so falling productivity will give you rising prices. It takes longer to produce the output, so the cost goes up. Increasing wages uh, and and increasing markups. So firms put up a higher, a higher markup on their input costs, then you're going to get rising prices out of that. And when you disaggregate the... And four, it must be four, Steve. You must be four. There must be number four, too much government spending. So you haven't mentioned that well, one. I'm coming back, and that was I'm, the whole... I'm coming back to that because <laughs> what we had during COVID was a dramatic increase in government spending. The government's capacity to create money, uh, which is something we you know, we argue all the time here, um, is, is dramatically boosted. Uh, monetary demand in the economy. Now that only turns into higher prices if 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 people look at it and workers say, "Oh, much more demand for labour. I'm going to put my wages up," uh, or you have uh, manufacturers saying, "Much less competition. We're going to put our markups up." And when you disaggregate it, there was a small wage surge at the beginning of the inflation with COVID uh, after the initial impact of the lockdown, putting virtually everybody out of a job. Uh, then the government spending. To increase that. There was a bit of a boost to wages, but most of the increase in cost came out of an increase in markups and a fall in labour productivity. Uh, the latter were driven by the impact of COVID on supply chains, but manufacturers um, are constrained by what Koleski, uh, I've got to pronounce his name, Mikhail Koleski, the great Polish economist who really developed many of Keynes's ideas mathematically 
uh, and before Keynes, he argued that uh, markups are constrained by what he called the degree of competition. He had an explanation for that that I don't particularly support. But by degree of competition, you can also say that it's how much how difficult it seems to you to be to get your products out the door from the factory factory uh, where, where, where factory gate to the warehouse into the retail shops and out the door. And when you had the impact of the government spending on people's capacity to buy during COVID, the level of perceived competition by manufacturers dropped quite radically. Let's put our markups up. So it, it, there's definitely the monetary boost has a causing plays a causal role there, but what it stimulates is the capacity for manufacturers to decide to put up markups, and that's one reason that you know, the Australian government, when I was part of it, went for what they call a, a prices and incomes accord to try to restrain that, uh, so that the increase would go to investment instead. But was that the situation at the in in the late seventies, early eighties? I mean, we had yes, it was right, exactly the same situation. <laughs> so the it's not not quite exactly. We had a huge we had a private debt bubble, and this is a global bubble. The, 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 there was an enormous private credit, credit bubble globally, not on the scale we had more recently, but certainly the largest since the Great Depression, around the world in 73, 74. And you had a, you had a huge increase in, in, uh, in, in employment. So there was tightness in labor markets. And then workers demanded wage rises at the time in response to that. And you also had, of course, the uh, the Yom Kippur War, and then the OPEC uh, cutting off the supply of oil to anybody who was on Israel's side in that war, which included the UK and uh, and America and Australia, and it had a quadrupling of oil prices. So all that, there was a huge economic boom caused by private credit, uh, and also that then leading to wage demands and uh, demand for higher oil prices, and that what gave us the inflation. So, isn't the, it wasn't Milton Friedman right then with his approach that the way to solve that and to you know try and uh, balance the economy was to whack it hard with with uh, with higher interest rates? So, in 1982, government spending in the UK was 48 percent of GDP. The employment rate, the number of people actually working, which is the best way of looking at it, I think, was 67 percent of the working age population. In 1988, after we'd been whacked by those high interest rates and then those interest rates started to come down and inflation came down, um, government spending was down to 39% of GDP. So they've cut their spending now because the crisis was over. The unemployment rate was back up to 71%. So less government spending, more people working. It seems like um, it worked. And as long as you don't look forward and then look at 1993 when employment was back down to 66% and government was uh, spending was back up to 48%. But for a while it worked. Well, it was also a major period of, uh, of women moving into the workforce too, by the way. That distorts those figures quite radically across that time period. So, um, uh, and like in, the, in America these days, the employment rate is about 60% of the population. So, uh, and that's stabilised. That seems to be about the, the sort of zero level um, in terms of where you, know, you get zero pressure for wage change. This comes at about 60% of the workforce being employed. But... Um, the the argument that the, you know, the, the government spending is the cause of inflation, uh, which Milton Friedman you know, shoved into Maggie Thatcher's brain, and that re remained the way she and Reagan and co thought, uh, ignores the role of the private sector in creating money. And of course, it's the private sector that, that creates most money, 
buy credit. So the and that these days that demand goes into asset prices. That a lot of the money that's borrowed isn't for industrial development. Unfortunately, uh, it certainly isn't borrowed by lent to entrepreneurs. It goes to people speculating on rising house prices and rising share prices. So uh, what we've got out of Maggie and Reagan is not a productive economy. Not one where you've liberated the entrepreneurial spirit of the British and American people. But we have turned into a nation of gamblers. Yeah, yeah. So actually, doing precisely the wrong thing. So there was. Milton Friedman saying, well, too much money is going to create inflation and money comes from government spending, where in reality, the, the money is coming from uh, from private debt. And she did exactly the wrong thing by encouraging more private debt, by giving all these tax breaks for people to buy their own houses. Yeah. And the share market, the, the, you know, breaking, the, the big bang and so on. So we've, we've gone from a, from a financial and entre- potentially entrepreneurial uh, country. And on that front, I'd rank England well below Germany and Japan and most of Europe and certainly America uh, into a into a gambling culture. All right. So the other thing that they did, uh, the Chancellor Jeffrey Howe raised VAT from 12.5% to 15%, but they also cut the top rate of income tax so that we had a more regressive tax, uh, which you'd say is a bad thing. But hey, the top rate of income tax she inherited was 83%, and she reduced it to, to 60%. Now we're sort of like looking at, you know, 45% as being the, the, the top rate of tax. 83%. I mean, that was just way too high. There's no incentive for anybody there. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I've, I've got to, I've got to uh, sympathize because I, <laughs> being a fan of the Beatles and being, what, what was I? Uh, I was 10 years old when they hit the pops. Um, they were, I think they actually hit as high as 99%. It was quite ludicrous how high the progressive rate of taxation was. And in America as well. Well, it wasn't far behind, um, I don't think. You know, they had a. Uh, yeah. So, like, I can, I can understand the attitude towards that because, um, you know, and this is one reason that I am a bit, I'm a critic of, of, of uh, relying heavily upon income tax to take government money government created money out of circulation because once you have a an accounting perspective, I won't call it modern monetary theory because it's 100% based on the accounting, that the government doesn't tax in order to spend, it spends in order to tax, as Warren Mosler puts it. Um, but taking that money out of circulation by doing by income tax is a great way to turn people into right-wing ideologues because they say, you're taking my money away. Now, when the, when the, when the Top marginal tax rate hits, you know, eighty percent. I think the Beatles were complaining about paying ninety-nine percent at one stage. Uh, the attitude: I want to go somewhere where they charge less income tax uh, becomes prevalent, and you get all the people going to where live in initially Monaco, and then you get all the overseas tax havens and so on. And we get a very distorted social system coming out of that mm. as well. There's got to be a better way of taking money out of circulation than by charging enormous rates of income tax. And tax was her downfall, of course, because she tried. Uh, and I don't. I, I remember at the time thinking, how can you not see this? And there were riots in the streets when she tried to introduce a poll tax, which was, which was, oh, that, yeah, that's, which was a flat rate yeah. tax. So your government, your local but, government, would be paying, would charging you the same rate to everybody, irrespective of how big your house was, to cover their own council needs. And those areas of high need had to pay the most, so therefore they had to charge the highest. So it was like a user pay system, whereas people in wealthy areas in inner London really didn't pay any poll tax at all, whereas in the uh, places in the north where they were heavily deprived, they had some of the highest rates of poll tax. Not really quite sure how she didn't, and it was the same, whether you're rich or poor within those those neighbourhoods. I'm not really quite sure how she didn't see that that was a stupid idea, and obviously it was what brought down the government in the end. 
I know. I mean, I, and that's one thing I experienced when I moved to the UK from Australia, because in Australia, if you're renting a place, the landlord pays the council tax. You get to the UK, the, rent, the tenant pays the council tax. So the cost of living is all the burdens of, of, of paying, you know, necessary imposts are put on the, on the, on the tenant rather than the landlord. And here we are back in feudal England yeah. once more. Well, she sold off a whole load of state owned assets. Some of it made sense. So she sold off British steel, British Airways, BP, water, electricity. So, I mean, there was very little point in the government owning BP or British Airways or maybe even uh, maybe even British Steel as well. So, I mean, but water and electricity, well, we're all paying the price for that now. That was, you know, public utilities. We're talking through about you, you're paying, I hate to be, you're paying through the nose. Yeah, yeah that's right. And it stinks, uh, for sure. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> it? We're paying for it through the nose and through our rivers and our sewage systems, uh, which are sometimes called rivers. So, yeah, absolutely. But British Airways, I mean, no brainer. Um, I mean, maybe even British Steel as well. The, the interesting thing, so British Steel was nationalised in 1967. That was one thing Harold Wilson had. I think it had been in and out of public hands a, a few times. So we had 14 steel companies that got merged into one government-run organisation. And the argument goes that those that government-run organisation was pretty inefficient. They didn't update their technology. They had plants that were operating below capacity uh, and the price was controlled by the government You'd say all the worst aspects of a of a state run organization, and we're not dependent. It's it's good to be self sufficient in steel. I guess it does help with the industrialization of Britain. So, was it a good idea or a bad idea? Do you think to uh, to to privatize British Steel? I'm ambivalent on that one. I mean, um, you there are there are some basic commodities you want to have. You know, as cheap as you can possibly make them, so profit can be made elsewhere. Um, but at the same time, still, there's you know, they, they look at the innovation happening. Uh, and I hate to use that. I'm, I'm going to be a Muscovite once more. Um, Elon Musk's uh, uh, SpaceX, and now the um, what's the, the thing, the, the Cybertruck, which has come out. They're innovating new uh, variations of stainless steel, uh, which they've got the motivation to do because they're selling a very you know, individually profitable. Product, so I would I would want to have the innovation uh, elements occurring occurring there. Uh, the things I want, uh, you know, in government ownership are the long term resources where the the payback period is so lengthy that private sector is likely to underinvest in them. And sewerage is a classic instance there. And I recommend Avner Avner offers book on that front, uh, making out the point that that's your dividing line. And what Maggie did was privatize virtually everything, uh, including you know we, we've got the attempt to privatize the health system. The whole idea about public health is that you ensure everybody is is public, the public is healthy, so you don't have you know things like pandemics wiping out your capacity to to work. Uh, so you, you there are the, and then there's no the, the private return on on health is 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 trivial and this health is unaffordable. And so you you then have start having the breakdown of the of the productive system because your people are no longer healthy. The same for sewerage, obviously, the same for water. So that she went well beyond what the dividing line should be between private and public because of her ideology driven by Milton Friedman and Hayek uh, that denigrates the public sector in general and praises the private in general when both of them have got weaknesses yeah. and both of them have got strengths. Signing the balance, absolutely. So 142,000 people worked for British Steel in 1980. They were taking hefty government subsidies. By 1989, after privatisation, it made a profit of $733 million. 
million and employed just 52,000, so a, a third of the, the workforce. So I get the irony was, you know, if you'd say, well, that was socialism, wasn't it? You know, government running it. Uh, we, uh, we imported cheaper steel from China, uh, which is far from a capitalist economy. So, so <laughs> you know, where do you draw the line? Uh, perhaps uh, it made sense with coal at the time. I mean, I was living in the north of England, and we lived through the miners' strike through 1984, uh, when the coal board, which was owned by the government, uh, closed 20 uneconomic pits. 20,000 people lost their jobs. We had a year-long strike. It really did turn nasty. But you look now and you go, yeah. she wanted to close the coal industry. You'd be saying, good on you, positive move for the planet. Well, this is actually one thing that Maggie deserves credit for. I'm going to get this in here before we, we, we terminate. Uh, she was a chemist and she understood global warming. And if she'd been in charge, we would never have had some of the nonsense that has come out of uh, you know, politics in the UK and America as well, uh, trivialising the importance of, of carbon dioxide in, uh, going into the atmosphere. And you know, the, the nonsense that gets spouted by politicians these days, she would have cut them cut them down, over yeah. it, and quite rightly so. But the problem was those people who left those coal mines didn't have anywhere else to go. So we had a situation where in the north and the northeast, we had lots of unemployment. In fact, one in five people were out of work in Northern Ireland in the early 1980s. And the same in many parts of uh, the north. Norman Tebbit's answer to that was to get on your bike and go where the jobs were, which, of course, was in the southeast, but no one could afford to move to the southeast. Well, you couldn't afford to buy a house, let alone or or rent, rent a house, house let alone exactly. buy one. Yeah, so you, yeah. So you were stuck. Uh, so, I mean, there was that, you know, it just uh, and, and that was the whole thing, wasn't it? If you close an industry, you've, you are free. I love the way economists talk about this. You know, you are free to take a job elsewhere and, you know, seize the opportunity. But if you're in a town, in your mining town, and the mine's just closed, there is no opportunity because all the shops have closed as well and you can't afford to move. You're stuck this, without a job. And this is actually part of the myths of neoclassical economics that they imagine this is perfectly mobile factors of production, as they call them. Uh, well, you know, it is feasible to talk about retraining a coal miner uh, as a, a jobber down in London, for example. But it's rather hard to turn a blast furnace into a stock exchange. And what is not mobile is the capital, the machinery itself. So rather than enabling the identical amount of capital to move from one industry to another, you destroy capital. You don't actually reproduce uh, the productivity, predictive capacity elsewhere. And that's the fallacy in their thinking. They're always thinking about efficiency of allocation. They're not thinking about creation and investment. And you know the whole idea that, again, back to this comment by Starmer, the, the innate uh, entrepreneurship of the British people. I mean, give me a break. Yeah, uh, maybe it was the Anglo's and Saxons, but it certainly ain't the Normans. Yeah, I think he's made a big mistake with that with that article. The other thing, finally, was she reduced the power of trade unions. So, and actually, the number of working days lost to strikes in Britain in 1979, just before, she, just as she was becoming prime minister, was 30 million. So she introduced new restrictions, and they fell to 4.3 million days in 1981. So the changes were. You needed to ballot. I think it was at least half of your members had to vote before you could take a strike. Unions couldn't support other strikes. They couldn't have collective action, of which there was quite a bit, particularly during the miners' strike. And there were restrictions on the right to picket as well. Actually, a lot of that seems quite mild now compared to where Rishi Sunak's wanting to take. I mean, he's wanting to ban strikes completely by emergency services and uh, introducing minimum service standards for railways on strike days and not allowing strikes if they're going to uh, make people, th those companies fall below those uh, minimum service standards. So, I mean, she started a trend. Uh, you know, the current government wants to take it further. 
And this is the, I mean, this is partly where the level of inequality has risen from today, because certainly there are, I mean, I've been involved in trade unions in various ways, and I've seen both good and bad actions by them in my own life experience. But fundamentally, what they gave you was a capacity to bargain. Now, when you take that away and you have individual workers, suppose they have to go and bargain with Jeff Bezos, the power relations are completely tilted in the favor of capitalists. And you don't get the, uh, the, you get two things you lose. You no longer have the capacity to get a share for the increase in productivity that comes out of investment and entrepreneurship. Um, and you also have much more instability because workers are terrified of actually trying to bargain for the probability of losing their job if they ask for a pay rise until such time as you get an absolute booming economy. And then other firms are trying to attract you away with high wages. So you get spikes in the level of uh, wage wage increases rather than the trade unions effectively smoothing out those changes over time. And you also get less encouragement with the decline in workers' share to actually innovate. So if you go back and look at the Scottish economy and work out well, why did Scotland innovate the, the spinning jenny, uh, why did it didn't happen, for example, in France, the reason is when you look at the wages being paid in Scotland, they were substantially higher than they were being paid in France. So the spinning jenny wouldn't have been a profitable investment in France, whereas it was profitable in Scotland. So to some extent, there's a feedback between high wages and high levels of innovation. Take away the trade unions, you take away some prevention of innovation, but you also take away some of the spur towards it as well. So again, it's a half-based thinking, and we're going to go from Maggie Thatcher to Tony Blair to Starmer. I think we're getting more half-baked by the slice. Yeah, it, does, it seems like there is a, a steady direction, a steady progression, doesn't it? So after Keir Starmer's article, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Imagine how horrendous Jeremy Corbyn would have been. We would have broken that uh, that that path of, uh, of of Tory prime ministers on both sides of politics. Uh, every week I speak to renters threatened with eviction. Jeremy Corbyn wrote on Twitter: homeless people struggling to survive, parents using food food banks, elderly people who can't afford heating. That is the legacy of Thatcherism. We will never achieve anything meaningful, any meaningful change until it ends for good. That was him commenting on Keir Starmer's article. I just wonder why Keir Starmer can't see it. Yeah, well, I mean, the, uh, the level of ruling class blinkers over the state of the UK uh, was something I, I noticed when I was there, and I don't see... Uh, I, if I'm going to decide which class I'm going to put Keith Starmer in, it ain't the working class. Keith Starmer, yeah. Well, although he would say, you know, he's the son of a toolmaker and his mum was a nurse, so that's all pretty working class uh, and a, you know, labour-supporting family uh, from generation to generation. But anyway, Margaret Thatcher... Well, given her some credit, she understood climate change and she recognised the top rate of tax was too high, but she also just created a massive amount of debt and all their policies were around that, basically. Private debt. Let's get that one on the... No, no government debt. God, get rid of that. <laughs> uh, we'll catch you next week, Steve. Thanks. Okay, mate. Bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. It was fun. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.